the whole key to the sort of my my understanding of psychological safety and coaching comes from being a diving instructor because helping people to do something terrifying really has provided me with so much insight into what is that relationship between you and the person you're coaching. Now, the story I tell is, of course, you know, when I was diving one day with an American diver, we're, we're doing a drift dive. It's a fantastic thing underwater in September in the Great Barrier Reef. You have the sound of humpback whales singing and uh, you, know, you hear the click of all the mollusks and you're drifting along beautifully. And it's, there's a wonderful peace to it. It's early in the morning. We come up for a, a safety stop and, uh, and I just sort of go okay to my... Uh, Buddy, and I turn back around, and there's a four meter tiger shark coming at us. I mean, and he's just coming to have a bit of a look, but, but of course, my dive buddy sort of panics, goes to the surface, and you know, we come to the surface, and he's taking his mask off, he's got his regulator, he's panicking, so on. And we're drifting quite quickly, and, and the person who was there meant to retrieve us from the water can't see us because of the sun. So we're in a bit of a mess. Um, and so creating that sort of in that moment of panic and anxiety and challenge, creating a sense of calm and connection is something I learned diving. My name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach, podcaster, and award-winning author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when their unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life. And you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them, how they got through the hard times, and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another Unlock Moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. So here's a random fact about me. I went viral on YouTube recently, and not with any of my coaching or leadership content. It was a random video from a scuba diving trip I was on back in 2017. It sat on the platform for years, just picking up the odd view here and there. And then in late 2021, the YouTube algorithm decided that it was worth sharing. At its peak, it was being viewed over 30,000 times a day. And to date, 2.5 million people have enjoyed watching me swimming with the fishies. One day, I hope my podcast content will be just as popular. With that, it felt serendipitous to be introduced to today's guest, a former scuba diving instructor on the Great Barrier Reef who translated his exceptional skills of diving below the surface into the same activity applied in the world of coaching. Skip Bowman is an Australian author, consultant, and keynote speaker, now focusing on how to transform organizations with a growth mindset and psychological safety. Based in Europe, He's worked with global organizations for over 25 years, developing unique programs and approaches with his clients. He spent his career studying the connections between mindset and productivity, and this has led to the development of the Safe to Great concept and assessment tools. After studying finance in Australia, 
He went on to attain his MA in Psychology and Languages in Copenhagen, Denmark. Skip has a Master's in Organizational Psychology and completed additional training in cross-cultural management, group dynamics, coaching, and cultural change. His book, From Safe to Great, The New Psychology of Leadership, will be published globally in September 2023 and outlines his integrated organizational and leadership development process for implementing a growth mindset based on psychological safety in global organizations. I can't wait to hear more about his journey and life lessons, and of course the unlocked moments of remarkable clarity he experienced along the way. Skip Bowman, it is my great pleasure to welcome you above the water surface to the unlock moment. Wonderful. Thank you very much for inviting me. What an introduction. I'm, I, there's nothing like becoming famous for something <laughs> what seems entirely irrelevant, but that's the world we live in today. And I'll tell you the, the, the moment that I figured it out was when uh, Usman, who helps me produce this podcast, he said to me, did you know you've got 12,500 followers on YouTube? And in my mind, I thought I had about 53. Um, he said, you've got 12,500. And I went and dug in and I've got all these videos from scuba diving trips from years ago, and they've all got about 75 views, except for one that's got two and a half million views. Um, and it, uh, the YouTube algorithm just, just decided to send me with the fishies, mainly to viewers in India and Bangladesh, actually. So hardly anybody in the UK has ever seen this video. But hey, you know, nothing to do with my content or expertise, but I'll, I'll run with it. <laughs> Congratulations, I suppose it's the thing in order there. So where do we need to start in understanding about the life and career journey that brings you to where you are today? Well, it starts as, as a, for me as a diving instructor, you know, you go to school, you go to university, and that's a bit of a track, a railway track that you sit on. Um, and I, I sort of had a disruptive unlocking moment. Uh, it's, it, it sort of started, though, the whole key to the sort of my my understanding of psychological safety and coaching comes from being a diving instructor because helping people to do something terrifying. <laughs> I don't know whether coaching's like that, but there can be moments of terror. Um, you know, really, really has provided me with so much you know insight into what is that relationship between you and the person you're coaching. Um, you know, the story I tell is, of course. You know, when I was diving one day with an American American diver, we're, we're doing a drift dive. It's a fantastic thing underwater in September in the Great Barrier Reef. You have the sound of humpback whales singing and uh, you, know, you hear the click of all the mollusks and you're drifting along beautifully. And it's, there's a wonderful peace to it. It's early in the morning. We come up for a, a safety stop and uh, and I just sort of go okay to my, uh, my buddy and I turn back around. There's a four-metre tiger shark coming at us. I mean, and he's just coming to have a bit of a look, but, but of course my dive buddy sort of panics, goes to the surface and, you know, we come to the surface and he's taking his mask off, he's got his regulator, he's panicking, so on, and we're drifting quite quickly and, and the person who was there meant to retrieve us from the water can't see us because of the sun. So we're in a bit of a mess. Um, and so, you know, creating that sort of in that moment of panic and anxiety and challenge, creating a sense of calm and connection is something I learned diving. And, and, and in that situation, enabled me to, you know, even despite the difficulty communicating, to get the calm, to be able to swim together across the reef, to stand up, to be seen and to be rescued, so to speak. Um, and to me, that sense of what I said, you know, calmness and connection is really what psychological safety is. And in coaching, it's a bit the same. You know, are we connected? Are we calm enough to be able to, do, to have a great coaching session? And, and leadership's a little bit similar. And there's great stories of, 
you know, events, whether it be Ernst Shackleton, et cetera, whereas that ability to take on great challenge is not the noisy bang on the table type. It's actually somebody who creates connection and calm and confidence. And that's really the sort of the foundation I learned. I'd never really thought about it until I went diving and that sort of unique experience of doing that. So that's a really uh, a transformational moment for me. And talk to me about that moment. So you've, you've surfaced with your buddy. They're panicking. What did you do in that moment to help regain that sense of calm? Well, the, the trick part about diving, which makes it so difficult, is that you can't talk very easily. Underwater, it's impossible. On the surface, a fraction easier. In reality, it's physicality. You know, you have to grab onto this guy and, and, and show that you, you're intent physically. And, and, and diving's like that. Uh, underwater, it's with eye contact. Because you can only really sort of connect. And, and when you've got a panicking diver underwater, you've got to grab them and look them in the eye and sort of say, okay, I'm here. I'm with you. We're going to go up to the surface. We're going to do it slowly. Nobody's going to die. And you can't say any of it. You're just going to look them in the eye, you know, do the Jedi mind trick or whatever it is. But, you know, I really, you know, I think too, there's something about creating that uh, sense of confidence and safety prior to getting in the water. I mean, I think it's a good idea that there is that sense that you're diving with somebody who there is a confidence that, you know, you've, you, it's some, some rituals. It's a bit like an aeroplane when you do a sort of like a check. The way you check your gear together is a way of building that confidence that I'm here to look after you. I want to make sure we do this right. You know, there are ways that instructors build that confidence uh, to be able to do things which are crazy. I mean, jumping into the water in 20, you know, let's say 50 meters of water at night on the Great Barrier Reef and no moon. With tiger sharks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you don't see them that often, but, but you know, it's mentally, it's a, bit, it's a bit intimidating. You roll back off into the water and it's dark and you can't see anything. You've got some little, we always give people the smallest torch possible so they really feel <laughs> intimidated. Um, coaching's not like that. We don't give people small torches. We give them spotlights. <laughs> but I love that metaphor. I think... Um, I've sort of taken in, in some of the work I've done since then has taken sort of like the, the Robert Keegan immunity change idea. And I use diving as a metaphor instead. I mean, I think it's a you know, diving below the surface is a lot what we do with coaching. You know, it's helping to people to see what, what's going on below the surface. When we say that, it's not like unconscious, but it's about reaching into sort of like taking the time, slowing things down and reflecting on things that we don't necessarily in the cut and thrust of the day think about. So I think, you know, that diving below the surface is, is a great metaphor for that. Mm. It's really interesting when the thing that comes to mind when you're describing that is in coaching or in management, that idea of contracting. It's really important as you go into the conversation that you both know that you're on the same page. You've had a conversation about who you are, where you're coming from, what you want to get out of the time. And that thing you're describing in diving where you know, you're in trouble if you decide once you're in the water to try and figure out whether you're on the same page as each other. You've planned it out in advance. And so often in the leadership world, you find where people get into trouble is when they haven't done that bit in advance and they discover in the moment, in the panic, that they're actually not aligned. Um, does that resonate with, with the work you do today? Yes, I think I sort of started in the coaching world, uh, I don't know, well over 25 years ago. And I think we sometimes when we start in that career, we're sort of taught to you know, take the 360 and go out and tame them, you know, sort of like some adventure in Africa. Um, I, I'm much more gentle today. 
not that I, I, I can't offer sort of like, you know, I think it's a bit like that contracting phase is super important in any, and just, you know, explaining the ethics, the boundaries that you want to put into the, the process. I'm pretty ethical about that, you know, when we're doing organizational coaching, as I would call it, you know, we're hired by companies and therefore there are very fairly strong ethical boundaries about what we can talk about, what we can't talk about. Um, and I think then then allowing the person to, to, to share what matters to them, you know, talk about themselves, their career, sort of put whatever feedback we're doing, whatever tool we're operating with, you know, and put that into the context of their life. Um, and, and I think too, I'm, I'm a big fan of narrative psychology. So, I mean, I do like hearing people's narrative. I often say, oh, can I send you my CV? And I say, well, no, actually I want you to tell the story because the stories we tell about ourselves are so extraordinarily powerful, but also potentially very handicapping. Um, so I, I like that part. I like to let listen to them, you know, what was important there? What did you learn there? And there's some people who've learned nothing. They've gone through a whole career and not learned a damn thing. <laughs> it's a bit like travelers today. Young people, you know, when they travel, they always say, yes, travel's so good for you. Yes, it is if you get off your mobile phone and actually experience something. It's not guaranteed that going overseas nowadays necessarily teaches something. And like, like uh, leadership, you, you may have just been lucky enough to, to, to bungle through your career successfully without necessarily gathering great self-reflective skills. So that's part of why I like to listen to them a lot to get a bit of an idea of, you know, where are we on the self-reflection scale? I really like that. And it's been my great privilege on this podcast to speak to people telling stories of their, of their experience, stories of their journeys, and these moments of remarkable clarity, these unlocked moments. And what I notice often is people when they really get into that moment when they knew something different that they didn't know before, which is different from the time where they maybe took different action, but when they focus in on that moment when they knew, it does tell them something that maybe they haven't thought about before, about purpose, about values, about, um, you know, that sort of origin story is so powerful. So for you, when you, you, know, when you think on that question of, in my life and career journey, what, what's a, a moment of really remarkable, sudden clarity about the path ahead? What, what comes to mind for you? Well, it's back at Airlie Beach in Queensland. It's certainly one of them. I, I, really, I really appreciate this unlocking moment. I, I use a similar word, I call it epiphany, which might be a Saxon religious way of calling it. But I think we learn a lot from, from it. And it's actually a bit of an understudied, under-reflected on idea. We get caught up that learning's all about about unpleasant things, you know, like disasters and frustration. Um, and like I say, you know, we learn from scars, you know, when things go wrong, but we also learn from stars, you know, like we learn from some moments when the stars align. And that sounds like something out of air, you know, the edge of Aquarius. But, um, but, but absolutely, in, in when I, because I'd been back in when I was a diving instructor, I remember it was like the second or third day I, I'd arrived in Ely Beach, which is a wonderful place. And it, it, just, and I'd been at university, I'd been living at home, and suddenly I'm in this completely different place. And, and I met some people sort of very accidentally. And I think unlocking moments are often associated with, you know, unusual meetings of people that suddenly stimulate something different. And I suddenly realized that 
quite a lot of things I've been doing for the year or so up to that point. I, I why was I doing? Why was I doing that? This was this felt much more me, much more who I wanted to be. And I remember, like you you said in some of your other podcasts around this, is I remember walking. I can still see it. I'm walking along by the Airlie Beach Caravan Park. I can still see it and feel it. And that's like 30 or whatever years ago. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, why was I doing? Why was I doing that? I should be doing this. This is fantastic. This is where I want to be. And uh, that that would be one of the highlights of my unlocking moments. And uh, absolutely changed my career. You know, I suddenly realized that teaching was my thing. I've had ones later where you know where I I didn't realize I wanted to study psychology either until a in this case a German professor who kind of befriended me at university sort of said, you know. You've got a bit of a talent for this this psychology thing, you know what, you know what, and and that was also an unlocking moment. In that case with a bit of help from from somebody who saw something in me, and and uh, Klaus, uh, he he sort of, and that changed my life too. Otherwise, I wouldn't, I, mean, I can't, I would never have been in leadership development if he hadn't sort of like said, no, no, you really do need to come and study here and do this. So you know, I think people can play that role where they see things in us that we don't know and um, I'm, gl- I'm so glad he did because uh, I'm very grateful to spend my whole life studying psychology I've I've really I found it a great pleasure so that's that, that's two moments it's, it's fascinating and there's a particular characteristic of 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 the unlock moment which is the idea that up to that point there is fog and in that moment there becomes clarity remarkable clarity and from that moment on always clarity so so when i talk to people they often say after that it was always clear for the next 20 30 years that thing was was clear so you know you're walking by the caravan park and there's something in the circumstance you're in where you're going why am i doing that this is what i want to do what what was the transition from fog to clarity in in that moment for you i think it it was sort of going from a, a life where you're sort of living it in terms of other people's expectations of you um, to suddenly, I mean, I was, what, 20, I think, at the time. So for me, it was, I think it was sort of letting go of, you know, oh, you're meant to study at this university, you're meant to do this, you're meant to do that kind of thing. And, and of course, my my father said, would always have thought that if you studied the arts or humanities, that was just, that was just like a one-way trip to unemployment. Uh, <laughs> so... So I mean, he's a lovely. He was a lovely fellow in many ways, but but he didn't really understand the arts very much. But, but so I think it was that. But it, it was just that discovery that the teaching was just like was for my for me. And even though I mean, I am a psychologist, but but and my psychologist friends would always get somewhat upset if somebody said to me, "What's your first? What's your first calling?" I'd say teaching. I mean, I, I've, I, that's, that's, and, and working in classrooms and, you know, with leaders or I started in le- teaching languages, but then I, you know, moved into leadership development, but I've always felt incredibly right. And in that space. And now, of course, after infinitesimal amounts of thousands of hours <laughs> of training, I still love it. People say, you know, don't you get bored? Don't I said, no, it's just, it's just my thing. You know, that's just it. I mean, I get me in a classroom, put, 20 people out there and we make something happen, you know, and I, I just love that part. I could be teaching flat, floral work or whatever. It doesn't really matter. Um, but I do happen to like teaching leadership, uh, so that's okay too. It's, it's a little bit the family business in, 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 in my family. My grandfather was headmaster. My, 
mother's teacher uh, and and still teaches um and uh, yeah it's it and i did a little bit of teaching when i was at university and and loved it for you when when you say teaching what do you mean by that term what is the thing in embodied by that word teaching for you that is the thing you love i like inspiring people i like inspiring their curiosity pretty much about anything really i think um my superpower has always been a bit around learning um and and some of your career i suspect learning is a bit of your thing too um you know it's just the, to be extraordinarily passionately curious about whatever and to bring that across i mean i'm not much of a regurgitate what i did before kind of type i do like to create it and sort of say i and i sometimes scare my participants a bit because i don't share with them sort of like you know even if it's a basic program i'll share with them what i'm thinking about you know i'd say look you know are these are the concerns or paradoxes or dilemmas that i'm reflecting on you know 30 years into the business i don't i don't hide that because i think it's important that teachers are fundamentally great learners and and they're bringing across that sense of wow this is really interesting i'd like to learn more and i think that's uh, that's fundamentally where i like to be in that process it's a really interesting question for me um i kind of took a bit of a 20 year hiatus from learning from university to quite recently and i really started to sort of upweighted again when i started to talk to people on on this podcast um and being curious about people um has has been something that has i've i feel i've come late to but loved every element of um tell me about your journey then from australia to europe how did you find yourself on this side of the world no i'm a love refugee i i met somebody when i was a diving instructor that ended my diving career and i moved to switzerland um and after a short period of time she dumped me and i didn't have anywhere to live so i got a job as an au pair um one of the few male au pairs in switzerland in 1992 um and uh, i looked after two small french boys uh, french-speaking kids for a whole year i didn't know french so i started learning french um and i discovered something there too i suppose that's an unlocking moment for me i discovered an ability with languages and this is very important for my life because um i'm like 22 at this point and i realized that i'm quite good at this and um and i learned french reasonably well in that year i'm I'm living there then i moved to england and then i moved to copenhagen or so a year later um and once i come to copenhagen i I set about learning danish because i want to study at university because my my psychology degree is in danish so i i then intensively uh had to learn danish and um that's and i become bilingual so that journey really was an unlocking moment as well. I never realized until I was an au pair that I could speak a foreign language. And, you know, it, that, that has changed my life. And today, of course, I speak French, Danish, English. My wife speaks Swedish. We've got a guest in the house right now who speaks Norwegian. I understand quite a lot of that too. Um, our, our daughters all speak three languages. So my life has become about language. And that's why I actually studied university. I went and studied the psychology of languages. Um, and that's shaped a lot about how I understand learning and change in organizations, funnily enough, about my whole model of adult learning has got to do with the challenge of the, one of the hardest things as an adult to do, which is to learn a foreign language to a high level. You know, it's a very difficult task. So another unlucky moment. That's really fascinating. And, and you were, so you were in your early 20s when you first started to learn a foreign language. And, and then you picked Danish. Well, Danish picked me. Um, 
kind of. I love refugee number two. I ended up in Copenhagen. But but yeah, I, learning languages and, and sort of assimilating into a culture became an incredibly unlocking moment. I learned so much. I'd never really seen it like that. And it became my dissertation, which was the, you know, the reduced personality of second language use. Um, and it's gone on to really shape how I look at how we help learners and whether that be learning a new culture or whether it be learning a language, but also in the workplace. What is really going on here? We're too, we're too obsessed with this sort of idea that the human mind is, is you know, not plastic, that somehow it sort of stops. And, and luckily, neuroscience has shown that, you know, the plasticity of the brain is very high, it, you know, pretty much all through your life until you get Alzheimer's and you can't remember anything. Um, and I'm a big fan of that, too, because, because absolutely, I am a highly competent Danish speaker, right? And I learned that from the age of 23. Um, there's no reason why not. But it, the hard part is the, the, the threat to ego. That's the hard part. And that's really interesting that, that I, I think one of the things that I find really fascinating and distinctive about your work is it's not just around the psychology of leadership, but it's how to make change happen and stick in the minds of the people you're working with based on really the neuroscience and the psychology of, of learning. I think, you know, you're, I, I know you're a deep expert in, in that space. And I think that's a really neat segue into the book. So start with explaining where did this book come from and what do you mean by from safe to great? What does that mean? I mean, I've worked with a lot of tools over the years and concepts and ideas um, and been inspired a lot by the more critical school of organizational leadership development, which is concerned about dysfunctional relationships, you know, perhaps the toxic, you know, triad kind of idea. So I'm a little bit more critical in my approach. Um, so I think it was back in 2015. I'm sort of thinking, I want to sort of bring my ideas together. And I read Amy Edmondson's book and I thought, mm, that's quite interesting, really. That's quite, you know, that whole psychological safety. That's, I mean, Maslow talked about safety and control as well. So, you know, it's not a completely new idea, but the way she conceptualized it in her sort of founding story around surgeons, you know, and, and surgery is a very powerful story. So I think she's redefined a little bit uh, that. So I took that. I was curious about growth mindset. You know, that was quite a Red Dweck's book. And I thought, you know, there's something there. And in, in some sort of epiphany moment, you know, unlocking moment, I went, oh, you know, there's that Jim Collins book too, which is obviously extraordinarily influential. Good to great. Well, why not safe to great? Maybe that's maybe that's where we are today. And I think, you know, like I talk in the book, safety is a real issue. It's an issue in workplaces because we're seeing a lot of mental health issues in workplace, whether it be burnout or stress, et cetera. So I think there's an issue within the workplace. But we're seeing issues that the, 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 the transform, you know, like COVID, the, the extraordinary business circumstances we have right now with high, inf, un, you know, high inflation, you know, low unemployment, all sorts of weird things happening. But AI and the green transformation are scary things, right? So I think safety has become a, a sort of like a key word, not about work, but about our society as a whole. So I think that's part of where it starts. And I think organizations not only have to create safety in their teams and organization, I think they have to contribute to safety in our societies. I just don't think um, corporate organizations can operate in societies that are fundamentally unsafe. That's going to erode their model in lots of ways. And so then you have the great piece, which is a little bit, you know, what, where does growth mindset take you? I mean, growth mindset for growth mindset's sake is not really that interesting. 
it has to lead to something. And so I think greatness is a good is something we should be aiming for. I mean, we'll never get there. And if we did, we'd be bored. So but I think that sort of sets it up. So Jim Collins's reference is, is clearly, but I think the world has changed. And I think the level of anxiety and, and, and cynicism in companies is very different today. Um, we're exposed more than we've ever been before because we've individualized the psychological contract between companies and people. So, so naturally, individual employees feel more exposed than they've ever been before. There is no lifelong employment. There is none of those things. So we, we really have to consider psychological safety in the company and beyond that. So I talk about some of those issues in the book and then try to come up with a pathway forward. I have a very funny method. I'm, I use humour quite a bit. Um, I have four animals to sort of depict four different mindsets. I think sort of the fixed mindset, growth mindset's a bit sort of binary um, and doesn't really fit with sort of developmental psychology, which tends to look at it a bit broader. So I have a hippo, which is the image for a toxic narcissistic leader. Um, the hippo being the most dangerous animal in Africa. And when they poop, they throw their tail around and it all goes everywhere. So that's that's a perfect example of a toxic narcissistic leader. So that's really where it starts. And I create the no hippo zone. And, you know, so I try to bring some humor. I think humor is an under um, underutilized form, not the sarcastic type, but the, the I suppose there's a court gesture in me is, is we have to make fun of power. And, and that's important. So the hippo is my way of laughing at the, uh, at the emperor, uh, so to speak. And, um, and I have other animals. I have a snail for the complying complacent, you know, people who are struggling a little bit with being assertive. And I have a clam, which is the cynical, skeptical types. And uh, these, are, these are metaphors that enable people to start reflecting about themselves um looking into those darker sides those blind sides whatever you want to call them um and maybe forgiving themselves laughing at themselves and perhaps then being able to adapt to something more positive which i call you know growth mindset and that'd be a dolphin i use a dolphin for a metaphor for that i was a big fan of flipper the american television series that they call him flipper so it had to be a dolphin excellent you're not the first person to sing uh, on the podcast you'll be glad to hear um Okay, I couldn't resist it. Who's the audience for your book? Who do you want to be reading it? I think I'd like leaders to read it um, and I'd like HR professionals to read it um, because I, I actually have a call to action. I think HR has become a bit limp, um, getting caught up in the what I would call the strength only approach, which means we're more or less just sort of like massaging relatively dysfunctional, powerful people and massaging their egos. And that's really not a great place to be. Um, there's way too much strength, strength only approaches in psychology and leadership. And that doesn't actually really lead anywhere good. It's a bit like when you do a talent program. I mean, what we know is that why, why, why young people's careers fail is because they don't really learn their derail as well, right? Um, so to start a talent program and just say, you just have to be yourself and be authentic. I mean, you're somewhat setting people up for failure there. Anyway. Um, so I think we need to embrace a critical, more critical approach. So, you know, my book talks about it. You know, the animals are part of that process of being able to look at things that are not okay. It's like when people say to me, oh, we need psychological safety in our teams. And, and there's sort of like this magical thing that if you just say the word psychological safety every, every hour, then suddenly you'll have it, you know. And as Freud would say, that sort of belief that just by saying something, it actually happens is magical thinking. And there's an awful lot of that in companies. Psychological safety, you cannot improve it without reducing status differences. And that is about power and that's about knowledge. 
That's why that's why Satya Nadella wisely said we have to shift from know-it-alls to learn-it-alls. What did he mean? Is you'll never get psychological safety that Amy Edmondson's called for a fearless organization if you have status differences. You have to have a flatter organization. I know we don't use that word, that term. It's sort of like our whole discussion about power and hierarchy. I don't know where did it go. It disappeared out the window somewhere as being a bit uncomfortable. The reality is that that's the first thing I'll say to you is that you, you can do all the appreciative inquiry things you want around psychological safety. It will not change a thing if you don't deal with the fact that you've got people in the room that are, are powerful and are not really willing to, to be more you know, humble, more approachable, more, you know, more interested in doing something together with other people in a good way, building confidence, et cetera. That's the secret to psychological safety, and it's the first step. Um, awareness programs probably have to focus on microaggressions, micro-exclusion behaviors, you know, inclusions related to this, but again, most people get inclusion wrong. So let's just say diversity and inclusion 50 times and we'll suddenly have it. And it's like, you know, that's not gonna help because you have to learn to observe below the surface or at least, you know, the, the, the micro level, what kinds of excluding and behaviors are there. And you have to learn to look for that. And you have to learn to want to be as a leader accountable for the fact that when a certain person talks in your group, why do you look away or change the subject? Well, that's because you're excluding them. And in a world where more and more organizations are having to handle the fact that they're managing people remotely or in a hybrid model, what are things that people, that leaders have got to be more mindful of when they've got a hybrid or remote working model in terms of building that strong psychological safety in their culture? Well, the research shows that it already is. Now, this is the interesting piece. All research and even early research prior to COVID back in 2007, there's quite a lot of work into re, to remote work. And, and what they discovered is that particularly underrepresented groups, whether it be women or you know, different ethnic backgrounds, they love remote work, virtual work. Why? Because they don't feel as excluded as they would do if they came to the office. Now, how does that work? Well, this is why I keep saying to you, you know, the, the desire to bring workers back to, to the office has got a lot more to do with the fact it's very difficult to use microaggressions and microexclusion online. It's extremely difficult because it's meant to be unobservable. You're meant to get away with it, right? And that can only happen if you're physically in the room and in the space. The other thing too is that when we're in the same room, we tend to have way too much sort of um, basically sucking up to the leader behavior, sycophantic behavior, you know, shaping my appearance to look good so the leader likes me kind of stuff. We do this at a fairly unconscious level, right? But as soon as we all go offline, I'm oh, sorry, online, none of these things can happen in the same way. We're all in our pajamas underneath, <laughs> underneath the table level and our cat walks in. So, and this is the research also shows now that a lot of, a lot of people, particularly, uh, particularly women who are, you know, trying to bring up families, et cetera, like it because they feel less judged, right? And I think there's something about the people think, oh, going to work's great. Yes, but social spaces at work aren't necessarily great, right? They are often the opposite. They're often quite excluding and they're often quite toxic. So, you know, I think um, psychological safety actually can be enhanced by working virtually. And that is actually some of the research shows. Um, and so that would be my take on it. It's a bit radical, but, but, but that's how I'd be looking at it. And I think the struggle to sort of find a solution here. Yes, of course, you need to facilitate, but you, whether, you're, whether you're online or in a room with people, you still need to facilitate. You still need to show appreciation for ideas. You need to encourage people who are quiet. The advantage of virtual is that 
everyone you, you get you tend to order things a little bit so the noisy people struggle to dominate a meeting in the same way and you can just turn their microphone off I, I really like that. I really like how you brought that to life. And I like the boldness because I think that there's many, many organizations that are slightly tiptoeing around the edges, worrying about offending people. And, and what you're saying is that you have to face into some of these difficult conversations. And you need to say, you know, sometimes life's got to be, work's got to be challenging. You've got to develop people. You've got to grow people. People are not looking for an indulgent, support-only kind of culture. They're looking for a balanced high performance culture where where they're challenged and stretched as much as as supported i think that's what you're saying yeah and i think i think the balance somewhere has just gone completely off uh in the way that we approach this it's an awful lot of self-paced learning too we've gone to this sort of like you know takeaway restaurant um you know in terms of learning which which i get it but the chance of going down some sort of self-enhancing rabbit hole is pretty high. <laughs> um, leadership is about learning how others see you, not reconfirming how you see yourself. And that's got to do with the fact that after 30 years of 360s, 60% of, of people have a fairly inaccurate picture of how others, you know, how they impact on others, 60%. So closing that gap's important. And you can't do that by taking another you know, learning program online that just confirms that, oh, that's how you are. I mean, that's just not going to work. And that's why I feel that a lot of our, when we're working with leaders, there has to be that relational aspect. There has to be a coach or there has to be peer-related feedback that can, that can create that discomfort zone that leadership is about. There's a wonderful book about coaching called The Discomfort Zone. It's one of my go-to books. Um, it, it really is essentially, how do we ask questions? How do we seek out the the discomfort i mean people say growth mindset i was born with i said you're not born with growth mindset you learn to be able to say okay this is what i i feel comfortable doing okay but that's probably not the best thing for the team so let me stretch myself into that discomfort zone and then learn to be a little bit better at making that choice to stretch yourself to to move into that discomfort zone is more what growth mindset's about and that's very unlikely to be born with that if you were only able to shift the thinking of your readership on one topic with from safe to great what topic would you pick that's the one that you really want to move the dial on that we have to close the gap between how we see ourselves and how we really impact on others we're getting too caught up as societies and at work and as leaders in a bubble of self-reinforcing this is who i am um, it's dangerous politically, it's dangerous for leadership, it's dangerous for great you know, collegial relationships. Um, we have to get better at, at making sure that people learn that those skills about, hey, I'm not exactly who I think I am, right? I need to work on this. And that would help everyone a lot. I, I discovered it as, a, I discovered it as learning languages. You know, what happens is when you speak a foreign language, you suddenly realize that you're not who you think you are because people see you through the filter of the language. So for me, that was that hard discovery about, and that's why often people as they're older run away from learning a second language because I, that discomfort of not being who I want to be is very, very uncomfortable. So that's what I'd hope that they could take from it, that, that learning that we, I really have to get curious about how others see me and, and develop that relational potential. Fantastic. Tell us about the uh, publication uh, timeline for the book and what formats it comes out in. The uh, book is released, it's on Amazon and a number of the other where for pre-order and it's available so you can pre-order it now and I'd love you to do that. I have a wonderful offer for anyone on 
who who writes to me and says, unlock moment as we're offering some consulting service and maybe a keynote speech if you buy some books uh, in the pre-order phase because it can really help with the Amazon algorithm. I know that's a self-publishing kind of thing, but, but it does help us. So that would be nice. And in September, it's going to be available uh, in ebook and book sales, you know, I think from September 3rd. And super looking forward to getting out there and uh, speaking about the book and hopefully providing our online, we're going to be providing lots of materials so people can work with the book, you know, as in what we call a book club concept. So there'll be sort of like a short video and an activity they can do with their teams uh, to sort of work with some of the ideas in the book. And having gone through this journey, uh, I am uh, deeply impressed by anybody else who chooses to go on the, uh, particularly the self-publishing marathon. So uh, I'm, I'm really impressed by the work you've done, Skip, and in, in putting this book together. How can people find out more about you and the work you do? The easiest place to find me is to just type in, I'm lucky I've got a name that not many other people have apart from some admiral from the US Navy. Um, so Skip Bowman, you'll find me relatively easily. Um, but safe to great.com. Uh, with the number two and uh, there you can read about um, what we're doing with the the concepts the ideas how we're trying to create scalable concepts that companies can take on board and use the language and use the tools themselves to be able to to really create both safe civil great growth-minded organizations and I'm all for that I, I mean I hope the idea is as contagious as possible and and helps people because growth mindset's already quite popular but hopefully this is a method that adds both a scalable tools to be able to use it, but also a certain level of criticalness that it's not just like this magic dust that we just, oh, we've all got growth mindsets. So, ah, it's a little harder than that. And so I'm hoping that there's, there's some inspiration for that. Fantastic. Thanks so much for talking us through all those, all those things. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. For diving instructor, author, consultant, and keynote speaker, Skip Bowman, it was connecting with a passion to teach and a love of learning languages as an adult that sparked a career of lifelong learning and the fulfilling work he does with leaders today. Go to Amazon and place your pre-order for Skip's upcoming book, From Safe to Great, The New Psychology of Leadership. Skip, thank you so much for joining me today on The Unlock Moment. Wonderful. Thank you very much for inviting me. This has been The Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotez. Thank you for listening in. You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset. Find me on Instagram at Dr. Gary Crotez and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. Most listeners to this podcast on Apple and Spotify haven't yet hit the follow button. If there's one thing you can do right now to help me out, then please click the follow button. The more followers I have, the better guests I can attract for you to learn from. Thanks again for listening and join me again soon here on the unlock moment.